Governor Kemp sends a sharp wake-up call to far-right Republicans who continue to block a government spending bill. Just pass the damn bill. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. On today's episode, we'll start with the fact that the U.S. Senate reached agreement on a bipartisan stopgap spending bill to keep the government open. But hardline Republicans in the House are unlikely to support the compromise. I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington, D.C. If Congress does not pass short-term spending by this weekend, the government is going to shut down, and that'll have a major impact on Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. The fate of that spending bill could be in the hands of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Flat out, no way. I've had enough. How the Congresswoman from Georgia's 14th District has become one of the biggest power players in the stormy House negotiations. And I'm Greg Bluestein in Los Angeles, California, where seven Republican candidates for president are getting set for their second primary debate tonight. And once again, Donald Trump is not participating. Is this a race for second place? We'll have a preview of the debate and also have a look at my in-depth interview with Governor Kemp, who a number of Republicans think could have been on the stage tonight. You know, Greg, I was thinking that um, that exactly that, that the interview you did with uh, the governor out at at the Texas Tribune Festival last week, there were so many things he said that you could imagine more mainstream Republicans would find very um, um, enticing in terms of his possible presidential candidacy. Yeah, I've heard from a number of national reporters who got audio of that interview who said, you know, especially the question where I asked him, do you regret not being on that stage? Do you regret not not having run uh, for president himself? And he went into an in-depth answer about, you know, I was so focused on re-election. I really wasn't running, you know, a re-election bid to also run for president one day. I was focused solely on re-election. By the time things calmed down, it was too late to run. But you can definitely hear pangs of a part of him who does wish he could have been on that debate stage, who does wish he could be right in the mix right now nationally. Of course, he still has influence, but he is not on that debate stage, so he can't he can't compete in this this battle right now, whether it be for second place or to somehow topple Donald Trump, who has a really huge lead in all these polls. Yeah. Patricia and Tia, are you up for the late night tonight watching this debate, Patricia? <laughs> Bill, you know I like to be asleep by 8.45 if all goes according to plan, but I will make an exception, even though Donald Trump is not on the stage. He does make it must-see TV, but I think given my current employment, it is it remains must-see TV, even though I don't expect it to be the fireworks that we could have enjoyed if he had shown up in California. You know, Tia Patricia Murphy's a 4 a.m. wake-up person. She is. And normally, I would be all in. I would be live tweeting. But I'm going to be honest with everyone in this room and listening. I'm not paying any attention to the debate tonight because I'm going to see Beyonce. So I'll catch the highlights afterwards. <laughs> okay. Well, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and I all invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean Breeze. Tropical Beach, Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. 
Welcome back to Politically Georgia. The Senate reached a bipartisan agreement yesterday on a spending bill that would keep the federal government open past the Saturday midnight deadline. But the problem is the future of the measure in the House remains in doubt. Far-right Republicans say that if Speaker McCarthy brings a measure supported by Democrats to the floor, they will begin the process of removing him from his post. And Tia, as you and James Salzer are reporting, if there is a shutdown, um, Georgia will be heavily impacted. Yeah, I mean, think about every branch of federal government. There are offices throughout Georgia. There are federal employees throughout Georgia. We have about a dozen uh, military installations and bases, about a dozen national parks. We've got the center's for disease control and prevention. And then beyond that, federal funding goes to the universities. It goes to the healthcare system. There are so many people who need to access government services like their veterans disability checks or their Medicaid and Medicare. And even if the funding for those programs exists through a short-term shutdown, the personnel might not be there. Your, Your wait times for your passport renewal may not be there but also the parks will probably close um you'll you'll have essential government workers who are working without pay which will have an impact on the economy those who are non-essential will just be sitting at home that'll have an impact on the economy now again things will get there will be more impact the longer there is a shutdown. Right now, for example, the first day of the shutdown is technically Sunday, where the government wouldn't be doing much anyways. So, you know, if it's a shutdown that is days, not weeks, we might not feel much pain. Um, But even this weekend, Jimmy Carter turns 99, and there are already changes at the Presidential Library and in Plains at the National Historical Park because of the shutdown. Yeah. Um, Patricia, you have followed these kinds of issues you did for years on the Hill. And and I'd love it if you would help us understand where things stand. So the, the Senate has reached a basic agreement. It, the agree, they haven't voted uh, on it yet, but Unfortunately for uh, the far right, it includes measures that the far right in the House say they won't accept, like funding for Ukraine as a particular example. And it doesn't have any of the spending cuts that House Republicans on the far right want to see. Also, at the same time, am I correct that the House has agreed to take up four spending bills and actually try to get them to the floor. So it's a little complicated as to where things are headed right now. Yeah, there are a whole lot of moving parts. And Tia, please weigh in here if I get any of this wrong, because I know you're covering this um, on the ground up there. Um, On the Senate side, the Senate has come to an agreement to... um, Uh, vote on a short-term funding bill, potentially through the middle of November. And um, that in itself will pose problems for conservatives on the House side who don't want a short-term spending bill at all, further compounding the likely disagreements is that there is indeed funding for Ukraine. Senators didn't want to take a chance that there would be zero. So they've tacked that onto this short-term spending bill, as well as some disaster aid. Um, Take that over to the House where the Republicans are in charge. That's going to run into a complete buzzsaw because it's not just Republicans in charge. It's really the most conservative members of the House have essentially veto power over the entire package. Um, You only need about 2% of the House to take this thing down in flames and I think that's what's likely to happen. So I I would fully expect a government shutdown of some duration because these spending bills that, yes, the House got agreement to start to vote on those individual spending bills, those have nothing to do with the looming government shutdown um, because those still have to be married with the Senate versions of those long-term spending bills. So um, it's they've got a major, major problem on their hands, mostly because the strategy on the House side seems to be in the hands of multiple different people on multiple different issues on any given day. Um, you need a clear voice of leadership over there to negotiate, and that's just not something that's in the cards right now for, for House Republicans. Yeah, and Greg, of course, you have uh, Donald Trump 
shouting in all caps on Truth Social that they should not pass a spending bill unless it eliminates funding for the prosecutors who are going after him. Yeah, he has his own priorities in place. He wants to the, cut the funding of the Justice Department, the prosecutors who are seeking him. Of course, they can't cut Fannie Willis's uh, budget. She is a local prosecutor here in Georgia, and we've already heard Governor Kemp and other other Republican leaders say that's off the table here in Georgia for the state budget. But certainly, that's part of the dilemma here for Republicans. You've also heard from other presidential can- candidates who are on differing sides. Some of them are calling for a shutdown. Some of them are calling for steeper spending cuts, but no shutdown. And some of them just want to keep the government going because they, they worry that Republicans will be blamed for this and that voters won't forget in 2024 when they go to the ballots that Republicans were the reason for the shutdown. Tia, there were 19 uh, Republicans in the Senate who voted against the measure, which takes me back to Donald Trump and his shouted out Truth Social to vote against anything that would um, in any way uh, keep funding available for the federal prosecutors uh, who are are prosecuting his case. And who who are those? Some of those who voted against it, some of his biggest supporters, J.D. Vance, Tommy Tuberville, uh, Rand Paul. Um, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Ron Johnson. Uh, So uh, the former president has managed to assert himself in this fight. Well, there are a lot of things at play, and some of it is not necessarily with Trump, particularly on the Senate side. It is some. I mean, the Tubervilles of the world and the J.D. Vances of the world, they're definitely pretty loyal to Trump. But the other thread that Patricia referenced is that there are many Republicans who will not support temporary government funding on principle. They think it's the wrong thing to do to these stopgap bills, which are called continuing resolutions. For example, Barry Loudermilk says he's never voted for a continuing resolution. And again, so think if there are conservatives who under no circumstances will ever vote yes, in the House, where Republicans only have a four-vote majority, that means if there are just four Republicans who are willing to vote no, which again, in the Senate, there were 19 out of 100. Out of 200 and something, Kevin McCarthy can only lose, four, I'm sorry, 19 out of 49. So in the, in the House, He's got 200 and something and he can only lose four. And so that means if he wants to even pass a continuing resolution in the House, he's going to have to negotiate with Democrats. Because, again, just on principle, there are Republicans who are not going to help McCarthy pass a continuing resolution. Then you add on those who are doing it for Trump reasons or Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's doing it over Ukraine funding. And he could have a lot of problems without negotiating with Democrats, which means he's going to have to change up some of the language to make it more uh, palatable for Democrats. So, Tia, I, you know, I do agree that funding the government by CR, as has been Congress's habit for the last dozen or so years, it's CR, 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 omnibus. So they they will pack all federal spending trillions of dollars into one big package, vote it up or down, go home for Christmas. You know, it is such a mess every year. So House conservatives have said this is not the right way to do a budget. It leads to bloated spending. It leads to bad decisions. We don't want to do that. Um, I think on on policy grounds, there's a lot to be said for that concept. But why do you think McCarthy did not have this conversation in July? Because that is when conservatives made this known that this is what they were going to do on October 1st. And October 1st has not moved. It's still right where we knew it was going to be the day right after September 30th. Why, why do you think he didn't do this sooner? That's a big source of frustration on the Republican side is that they remember there was a meltdown over appropriations right in late June, right before that long summer break, where they tried to move a bill, couldn't get it to move, and sent members home early on recess. And a lot of Republicans are saying, why didn't we talk about this during the recess? Now, this, you know, that's something that 
is on Kevin McCarthy. Um, I think it was a strategy that he thought we're going to go home and let people cool off. And I think he thought they would come back and be under crunch time. And I think he underestimated his opposition. I also think that for better or for worse, Kevin McCarthy has a lot of confidence in his own abilities to kind of overcome the opposition. You know, he talks about they said I was never going to be speaker and look, I'm speaker now. And they said we couldn't um, avoid the debt ceiling uh, default and we proved them wrong. So you can go ahead and count me out and I always prove them wrong. But the question is at what cost? You know, yeah, you became speaker, but after 15 rounds and giving away everything to a, a hard right uh, contingent. Yeah, you negotiated a debt ceiling deal to avoid a debt default, but you can't even stick to that agreement because of the far right members who don't think you struck a good deal. And now we're looking at a, a government shutdown that everyone's pointing fingers. Republicans are blaming Democrats, you know, and all of that. At the end of the day, the government shutdown comes down to the fact that House Republicans couldn't get on one accord. Um, that's because, again, in the Senate, they're working in a bipartisan fashion. Greg, uh, before we uh, leave the subject, uh, we've pointed out on the podcast in the past, and we should do it again today, Republicans have shut the government down on a number of occasions over the last uh, 20 plus years or so. It never works out well uh, for them. And even Senator Susan Collins, when she uh, uh, said she would go along with this bipartisan agreement in the Senate, warned Republicans of the same exact thing. This doesn't have a happy ending when you shut the government down, Republicans. No, Republicans get blamed for the shutdown and they you know, they're the reasons why in the House that, 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 that this is going to happen uh, or it looks like it's going to happen. And this is why what Governor Kemp said uh, over at the Texas Tribune Festival is so interesting. I think we have some audio of it, but uh, he basically called for Republicans to get their act together. Here's a snippet. If you're really hell bent on working on spending and controlling spending, you know, where are their proposals with dealing with that? None of them have enough guts to come out and say anything about that because they know they'll get lit up politically from the other side or for, you know, the front runner in the presidential race. You know, put put your plan out there. I mean, how are you going to control spending in Washington, D.C.? And if not, just pass the damn bill and try to get something when you only control one branch of government. I mean, we got control of the House. We don't control the Senate. We don't control the White House. So why not have some sort of spending bill that would help secure the border, even though you're not getting everything you want, take a win, show people that you know how to govern, and then try to take control of the House and the White House in 2024. So you calling for compromise in Washington? I'm just trying, I'm calling for them to do something up there. I mean, I think no, regardless of what side you're on, that's what the American people want. Greg? Yeah, well, look, there's a lot of, um, there, there are some Republicans who want to blame Democrats who say, oh, if, if you know, we're so close to a deal, why, why can't um, the House Democrats get on the same page as Republicans and broker compromise? But Governor Kemp is saying, look, it's Republicans' problem right now. Republicans have control of the U.S. House and that we all know that if there is a deal struck with Democrats, and I'm not ruling it out, but if there is a deal struck with Democrats, there'll be a far right push to, to oust uh, Speaker McCarthy from his post. So Governor Kemp is saying, hey, let's get our act together. Let's show uh, as Republicans that we can get a deal done so we don't look inept and inefficient. And he's calling for that compromise. He's calling for some deal. And he went on to say he does support uh, Ukrainian funding, uh, military aid in, in Ukraine, uh, but he just wants a deal to be hashed out so that Republicans can go to voters in 2024 and say, look, we can we can run the government. All right. The drama continues this week in Washington and um, actually still to come as the drama continues to unfold. Patricia Murphy suggests that maybe it's not Kevin McCarthy we should be watching so closely. Perhaps it should be Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. 
Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We think that the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning. But you have to be a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. You'll get three months of unlimited access, digital access, for just 99 cents. So go to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast so you always know what's really going on. Patricia, you wrote a really fascinating uh, column uh, that's in today's AJC. You've said that perhaps the key to the success of a budget bill in the House may not lie in the hands of Speaker McCarthy, but in Marjorie Taylor Greene. It feels like it was just yesterday that she was a backbencher who made headlines for her outrageous remarks, and now she's become perhaps the most powerful member of the Republican conference in the U.S. House. Uh, Yeah, and I know we've uh, talked about this before on the podcast. In fact, talking about on the podcast is why I wanted to write a column about it, um, because this is just so different from the way previous speakers have run their chambers and run their caucuses. Um, uh, Dennis Hastert had the Hastert rule where it required a majority of the majority to bring a bill to the floor. And that was seen at the time as something kind of um, new and unusual, although Newt Gingrich, of course, did it as well. But it was seen as the step toward more partisanship and more partisan bills coming to the floor and only partisan bills coming to the floor um, with some exceptions. However, because of the way that McCarthy got to the speakership with 15 ballots and giving any one member the power to uh, call a vote of no confidence and oust him from the chamber, he has given the most extreme members of his caucus veto power over just about everything he does. And that leaves even the rest of the Georgia delegation, Republicans who are more, um, I wouldn't even call them moderate, they're just more mainstream. Um, uh, Somebody like Buddy Carter seems very frustrated with the shutdown Tia way in here. Um, uh, Austin Scott would seem to want to continue funding uh, for the military bases. Uh, But it McCarthy has handed all of that power over to these individual members and Green is the one who supported him for speaker, but has really been willing to take a walk on him whenever she feels like it. And um, she's being very consistent to what she said she was going to do, but it's really hurting McCarthy's efforts to move his own goals forward. But he, you know, he really did it to himself. Yeah, I'll note here that just uh, yesterday, Tuesday, when uh, the House was putting these four long-term spending bills on the floor and they were taking a procedural vote, Marjorie Taylor Greene was the only Republican to oppose the measure. Every other Republican, even those who had made life difficult for Kevin McCarthy in the past couple of weeks, voted because... For most of the House Republicans, again, we've talked about them wanting different things. A lot of the House Republicans who had been making life hard for Speaker McCarthy said it was because he wasn't moving these appropriation bills individually. Going back to what you talked about, Patricia, about the 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 complaints of omnibus spending and continuing resolutions. They want to get back to what is called regular order, passing appropriations bills one one by one. But Marjorie Taylor Greene said, that's not my problem. My problem is this Ukraine funding. And so, again, she was the only Republican to vote no because there is Ukraine funding in this legislation. Um, I think she's staying true to her brand. A lot of people are like, well, what's going on? Because isn't she supposed to be maturing? And isn't she an ally of Speaker McCarthy? I think all of that is true, but she still is on brand as like this hard right maverick MAGA conservative. Um, And I think the fact that Donald Trump she spent time with him. We know that he's encouraged um, members to oppose some of the legislation. So I think she's sticking with that. And it's helping to boost her. Because remember, for a minute, there were conservatives saying, we don't know about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Have we lost her to the mainstream? And I think she's 
using things like this budget fight to prove that she's still who she, who they thought she was. Greg, we should make it clear that it is not as if she stopped making many of the outrageous statements that brought her notoriety and lots of money from small uh, money donors. But I wonder how much cover is she getting from the fact that she has stuck so closely to Donald Trump? She was with him just this past weekend, including at that uh, gun store in South Carolina where Trump said he wanted to buy a Glock and it got so much attention. Does Trump give her cover to be able to be a little bit more independent from the, uh, uh, the speaker and that far right contingent if she opposes them? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think right now, if you were to write sort of a, a chapter of a book on Marjorie Taylor Greene at this moment. It's from pariah to power broker right now, right? I mean, she has gone from sort of backbench, someone who Republicans didn't even want to get, you know, touch with a 10-foot pole, let alone Democrats, to someone who is a key, a key figure in all these negotiations. And you're right about Donald Trump. I mean, look, she has said to Tia, she said to me that she is not, you know, she is, she is very, uh, uh, hopeful of a potential vice president gig or another cabinet post. So, of course, there's that in mind. She's become one of Donald Trump's key allies on the campaign trail. I think Trump gives her cover. I think she, frankly, might give Trump cover, too, um, sometimes with the with the ultra-right MAGA folks, because she has her own national brand as well. Not Trump's national brand, but she has her own following as well. And look, I mean, she had an emergency town hall meeting in her district on Friday night to lay out her reasons for blocking Kevin McCarthy's plans. And as we reported in the Jolt, at one point she held her mic to the cell phone for a call from Donald Trump, who said, when you're there for Marjorie, you're there for me too. You know, so there's the sort of an equal sign between the two of them that Donald Trump equals Marjorie Taylor Greene on many of these issues. Uh, they might have different focuses, right? Her focus is more on Ukraine, blocking Ukraine funding than his is. His is more in blocking the Justice Department funding. Um, but they're equating themselves to each other. Um, and I'll quickly contrast that approach to Governor Kemp's approach and Greg, exactly what he said to you in your conversation with him in Texas last week. And as we're looking at future statewide elections, um, we frequently talk about the governor for a potential Senate candidate in 2026. And I hear Marjorie Taylor Greene's name as a potential candidate in 2026 as well. It's not completely out of the out of off the wall that those two could face each other in a primary. Um, uh, Now, Kemp has a great track record with his own statewide primaries, but somebody like Green um, and her loyalty and and uh, partnership with Donald Trump um, would be something to, to really keep an eye on. All right. Could we, before we have to take another break, um, Tia, I'd, I'd love to change the subject just briefly, if I may, because um, up in Washington, you're among the many people in the press corps who are watching the uh, uh, drama play out over uh, the new federal indictment of Senator Menendez of New Jersey. Uh, The the charges, he's already beaten charges of corruption once before federal charges, but now they've come back. And this time, uh, the charges, uh, at least the way they're laid out in the indictment, seem terribly serious, that he has traded uh, favors for the to help the Egyptian government in exchange for blocks of gold, bricks of gold. Uh, he was found with almost five hundred thousand dollars of cash in his home, a Mercedes Benz convertible. Um, and so now the question is: Is the Senate going to try to pressure him into resigning his seat? He says no. But there is an increasing number of senators, including you, report now one of our own calling on him to step down. Actually, both of our own called on oh, him to step okay. down. Um, Warnock was first. Warnock put out a statement. He kind of blasted a statement on social media, making it clear he thinks Senator Menendez should resign. And then later, I caught up with Senator Ossoff, asked him about it. And he also said that he thought Senator Menendez would resign. And I asked Senator Ossoff, I said, you know, well, what Senator Menendez is saying is, hey, I'm innocent. Don't rush to judge me. And, you know, perhaps because they don't want former President Donald Trump to catch any uh, runoff on this, Republicans are kind of saying the same thing. It's like, well, let's not rush to judgment, you know. Um, 
And so I asked Senator Ossoff, I said, why why do you believe he should resign if he hasn't been found guilty, you know? And um, what he said is that, you know, Senator Menendez is presumed innocent until proven guilty. He's entitled to due process. But what Ossoff's quote is, given the totality of the circumstances surrounding this indictment, I think it's time for Senator Menendez to step aside. Uh, That is his quote. And again, it goes back to what is in the indictment. And there are pictures, pictures of gold bars, pictures of jackets with Senate uh, logos on them with wads of cash. Um, you know, stacks of cash. Um, And so, and again, the fact that this has to do with a foreign entity that he's accused of using his position as chairman of the Foreign Services Committee to assist. But that being said, I don't know if it's pressure. You know what I mean? I think he's losing support Quite frankly, as someone who's relatively new on Capitol Hill, I already felt that Senator Menendez was kind of he was laying low. Democrats needed him because their majority is thin. So they hadn't kicked him to the curb, but he wasn't out front either. Um, As as someone who spends a healthy amount of time at the Capitol, I can't say that I would know who he was if he walked past me. He's laying he's been laying low. Um, And now they, I think, feel more confident speaking about him, speaking out because there's a Democratic senator. They think his replacement would also be a Democrat. But I don't I still don't know if there's pressure to, you know, they're 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 parting ways. But are they pressuring him? I don't know. Greg, we should point out that uh, Senator Cory Booker, his colleague from New Jersey, has also called on him to step down. And there's there there are maybe ethical reasons involved in that, but also political reasons. If he does resign his seat, then the Democratic governor of New Jersey uh, gets the opportunity to appoint a replacement who would serve until the next election and maybe have a leg up uh, in beating a potential Republican opponent. Exactly. We could play a hypothetical. What if there's a Republican governor of New Jersey? How would it change the situation? But the facts are the facts. And there is pressure on Democratic senators to speak out. I'm hearing it from Republicans right now. Hey, where's Ossoff on this? Where's Senator Warnock on this? And now we know, thanks to Tia, that both those Democratic U.S. senators in Georgia have spoken up, have both called for Menendez to step down. Um, And, you know, that... I, th- I think saying it's a stampede is an understatement because at this point we've seen a torrent of Democratic senators. Uh, they are not, uh, you know, breaking new ground here in Georgia by calling for him to resign. There's a number of senators who had already kind of broken the uh, the dam, so to speak, uh, a few days ago, a few days or a few hours earlier, I should say, um, who have called for this. So there, there seems to be a, a, a growing consensus around Senator Menendez in, in the U.S. Senate. All right. Um, Greg Bluestein, you're already in position near Simi Valley, California, uh, where the uh, debate will play out tonight at the Ronald Reagan uh, Presidential Library. So coming up in our next block, um, we'll get a preview of that debate uh, from you and everybody else on the panel. You're listening to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our colleagues at the AJC are working around the clock to keep you informed on all the developments in the Fulton County case against Donald Trump. And now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place, the Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll get our latest coverage and analysis of this historic case in your inbox. Sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter, one word. That's AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Greg Bluestein, you're all set. 
You'll be in the spin room tonight watching the debate and getting a chance to talk to candidates and their handlers afterwards. What are you looking for tonight, Greg? Well, one way I'm looking at this debate, it's a race for second place right now. Obviously, Donald Trump still has that huge lead in the Georgia Republican poll that the AJC just commissioned. It was 57%. We're seeing similarly huge leads nationally, 40, 50 points over his rivals. But right now, you know, it's been seen Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has long been the primary number two challenger to Donald Trump, but he's slipping in some recent polls in early states, third place in some, even lower in some others. And I think some of his rivals see tonight as a huge opening. It could be an opportunity for them to take a swipe at DeSantis, exploit a vulnerability. I don't think they're going to ignore Donald Trump. The moderator, Stuart Varney, told me, one of the three moderators told me that the the moderators are unlikely to bring up Trump much themselves, but they expect the candidates to. And so do I. I think the candidates will bring up Trump plenty. Um, But I think DeSantis will really be on the firing line tonight because they see a weakness and they're going to try to exploit it. Uh, Patricia, just in general, what are you going to be watching for? Well, I hate to copy Greg Bluestein, but um, I'm going to be watching the race for number two. I also am going to watch Nikki Haley. I think that she is the one who did herself the most favors in the last debate. She really set herself apart in terms of being willing to engage with um, Vivek Ramaswamy, who uh, Mike Pence engaged with as well, but has not helped him in the polls one little bit probably for a lot of other reasons. So I'll also be watching um, Nikki Haley. I think she's the person who the most likely to break out from this pack um, because I don't think it's going to be Ron DeSantis. I think the more people know him, the less they seem to like him. As his name ID goes up, his unfavorables go up as well. And that's just not the right place to be starting when you haven't even had votes cast yet. So I'll for sure be watching um, to see how they're all engaging with Ramaswamy and can Ramaswamy sort of Um, set himself apart as somebody who is a serious candidate, not sort of a curiosity, but somebody with actual leadership potential. There have been so many um, past statements that now are conflicting with his current statements, and he's not very old, so he hasn't had much time to go back on his his own opinions. Um, So I think he's going to have to really change the, um, kind of change the, the trajectory of where his campaign is going as well. It's interesting um, that there is a lot of pressure on DeSantis tonight because he kind of disappeared in that first debate, surprisingly. He was not much of a force. And um, there's a feeling tonight, and both Patricia and Greg have referred to it, that if there is a race for second, this is the only, this may be DeSantis's last chance to really make himself a power player in that race for second. Yeah, I agree. I think that the first debate, DeSantis didn't do very well and he's had some tough weeks since then. He's almost lost his status as like the guaranteed number two. You know, now it's up for debate. It's um, he's got some folks nipping at him for number two. And I think he needs not just a showing that helps people's opinion of him, but I think he needs to be more memorable you know, we he didn't really have much to say or make much of an uh, impression on people. I also think, quite frankly, the same goes for Senator Tim Scott. He had hoped uh, that he could start being taken seriously. You know, we keep hearing how fired up people are about Tim Scott and how they really think he's the answer. They really think he's someone who can beat Joe Biden. They really think he's the future of the Republican Party. But he kind of was in the shadows during the debate. He didn't have anything memorable. Uh, Whereas Nikki Haley came out of the debate, like Patricia said, looking great and getting new attention and saw a boost in the polls. That did not happen for Tim Scott. And there are people who have invested a lot of their money and kind of put their bets that Tim Scott could be the guy. And I think they need him to show them something. Yeah, I mean, one thing that will be clear is that donors will be watching this debate very closely to see if there is. Everyone wants a breakout moment, right? Everyone's going to this debate thinking that they can have that moment that gets them more attention, that gets them social media buzz, that can help them fundraise, that help them 
bring something to the campaign trail. Uh, we didn't see that really in the first debate. And Tia's right. I mean, Tim Scott kind of, he, he didn't have a gaffe or anything like that, but he didn't stand out. Nikki Haley had a good debate, but it hasn't, hasn't really you know, had a lasting impact that we've seen. Um, she has a minor bump in the polls, but not a huge one. But the, tr- the challenge for all these candidates, and you might want to call it a po- an impossible challenge, we'll see if it's impossible or not, is that they, yeah, on one hand, they want to emerge as Donald Trump's most formidable rival. They want to take that DeSantis spot away. And the second challenge they have is they they have to stop Donald Trump from running away with the field, right? He already has this huge lead. He's already running basically as the presumptive Republican nominee. He's already casting ahead to a matchup against Joe Biden. So if you're Tim Scott, if you're Nikki Haley, if you're Mike Pence, how do you kind of traverse that dual track challenge by taking over Ron DeSantis but also keeping Donald Trump at least within striking distance. Well, Greg, as I know you haven't had a lot of time out there to get the feel on the ground, um, but as you've been prepping for this, what is the mood out there? If I were a Republican candidate and it's the second time Donald Trump has stood up the field for a debate, I would be so frustrated. I would just want to be in the same room with him so I could land a few punches, but he is so smart at this. He just goes to Detroit instead and does whatever he wants and makes news and steals headlines. And the headline coming out of this debate is still going to be about Donald Trump. Yeah. And as you saw from Governor Kemp in Milwaukee said, hey, look, Donald Trump's the loser of the debate. Trump doesn't care. <laughs> you know, he's still he's still at 50 plus percent of the vote in many of the uh, national polls. And he's hovering around the 50 percent mark in many of the early state polls. And so, you know, he's counterprogramming it, as you mentioned. He's he's going to be talking to striking union workers out in Michigan. Um, he's going I, I expect him to continue to counterprogram. And, and it's hard to say it's not a smart strategy, because when you have that advantage, advantage in the polls. Yes, as a reporter and as a voter, love to see him on the stage, right? Love to see him, uh, you know, defend his policies, uh, have to have to elaborate on some of his stances in a controlled and, and moderated setting. But uh, and, and so with these 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 rivals. But if you're his strategist, you say, stay away from the debate stage. There's no reason to go. Why, why bother? Yeah, I think it's so interesting, Greg, you brought up former President Trump's counter-programming. And don't get me wrong, I don't think um, the reception he receives in Michigan will have a huge influence on like early states or his standing in the polling. But I do think it will be interesting to see what kind of reception he receives in Michigan. He's already being criticized, for example, you know, union workers are striking but the event is being held at a non-union shop we know that his reputation is as someone who's been hostile towards unions so the question is do the unions show up and um, question his motivations for being there does he get put on the spot for kind of taking advantage of uh, the union strike without really having policies that are deemed pro-union. I think it's just going to be really interesting to see how it goes for him in Michigan. Again, I don't think it'll have a lot of impact on the primary contest. And no matter what, he is managing to take attention away from the debate. But I think it might teach us some things about how far he's able to go into into what we would normally consider democratic territory. Bill, you've asked us what we're watching. What are you watching? Well, I'm particularly interested in watching Vivek Ramaswamy uh, tonight because I know he gained ground in that first debate um, in in a lot of cases. I mean, the poll showed he, he did make some gains, but I think he walks the borderline between being someone who is compelling and exciting to listen to and someone who's really obnoxious in the way he tries to command attention on the stage. And I'll be interested in seeing if he modifies to some extent Um, his approach. I doubt that he will, but I'm really interested in that. Um, And of course, I'm also interested in watching the fact that the only two on that stage who may be the most willing to really be critical of Trump, and and of course, Chris Christie being the top in that field, and Mike Pence to a lesser extent, are either of them going to bring up 
this decision in federal court in New York yesterday, which was really kind of astonishing, a judge saying that um, Donald Trump's organization has committed fraud in the way that it valued its properties and the like, and saying that Trump should lose his business license in New York, which would be a remarkable thing if he had to give up properties like Trump Tower and the like. So I'd be interested if anybody's going to go there, Greg, and if they do, will it matter at all? Yeah, that's the big question. Will it will it matter? Donald Trump has used all these these legal problems to just paint a corrupt Justice Department, a corrupt judiciary, um, whether it be New York, the federal DOJ, or here, of course, in Fulton County, uh, as as going after him, as as weaponized uh, by by President Joe Biden and his allies. And and you're right, this is going to be, you know, it's interesting because this is a Fox business debate hosted Mm -hmm. by Fox Business Network. But the moderators told me, look, it's going to be, you know, of course, they can't ignore the economy, the uh, inflation, Joe Biden's policies, the Republican policies that will come up. And of course, the government shutdown, but they say it's also going to focus on foreign policy. Uh, There's going to be, of course, a Trump segment. (laughs) There can't not be, or at least Trump will be brought up in some form or fashion. Um, And it'll be focused on and other issues that that bend far beyond the economy. So uh, I'll be interested to see how that exactly comes up. But the moderators promise that hey, it's not just going to be all about uh, you know the Federal Reserve or 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 inflation rates or what have you. Patricia, obviously the candidates will be asked, or I shouldn't say obviously, I would assume they're going to be asked about the House's uh, problems in trying to pass this spending bill. Do you imagine that the most conservative people on that stage, the Ron DeSantis, perhaps the Mike Pence, Vivek Ramaswamy, um, could they have in some way um, an influence in terms of the way they talk about Republicans, far-right Republicans, holding the line against Um, making a compromise, or is that really going to be totally irrelevant to what's going on in Washington? Yeah, I think if, you know, if they're asked about it, they will um, talk about the need to uh, cut spending, to have leadership. And this is why we don't want to have Joe Biden there. I don't think that they're going to get into criticizing any fellow Republicans at this point, but there certainly are some things they can and I'm sure would say about uh, President Biden and the federal deficit. Um, The debt uh, in the old days was the biggest issue for um, Republican voters. I think the economy is still hugely important and they'll try and connect those two um, dots together. I think it's uh, an area there's typically a lot of agreement which is why it's so bizarre that House Republicans cannot manage to get on the same page with this. Um, but I'm sure they will align themselves more with House Republicans than not. Tia, I'm also imagining that the question of support for Ukraine comes up, which is still an issue. We know Marjorie Taylor Greene is making it a huge issue in the uh, House talks. Um, and, and it'll be fascinating to see how they all line up on that Um, which has become, to some extent, for some Republicans, a litmus test. Yeah, I agree. And if I remember, there was some, that was a portion of the first debate. Yes. And um, people like Mike Pence and Nikki Haley made a strong case for funding Ukraine. We know that um, Ron DeSantis has kind of He's been anti-spending, but has kind of been wishy-washy on some of his rhetoric about Ukraine. He kind of took it too far um, talking about Russia and Ukraine and had to walk it back. Um, You know, some previous statements he had made about it. Um, I do think because, again, this is one of those things where what resonates with MAGA isn't necessarily what mainstream where mainstream Republicans are where it comes to Ukraine. And um, it might not play well on a general election stage, particularly when you hear from people like Vivek Ramaswamy, who it's clear doesn't have the political or foreign policy experience. I think that's something Nikki Haley said pretty clearly to him during the first debate. So I do think they'll they'll get into it um, and it'll it'll show some contrast but it also to me is more about kind of that MAGA arm of the Republican Party we've been talking about 
Yeah, I do think, uh, yes, they talked about it in the first debate, but I think the focus on it is a little bit sharper because it's become an issue in the budget talks. Greg, can I ask you, um, we're running a little bit short, but I listened to your entire interview in the Texas Tribune Festival with Governor Kemp, and it was really, really a fascinating interview. And tell me if I'm reading too much into it. But there was a moment in which you talked to him about saying it, his saying in Milwaukee that Trump was the loser because he wasn't going to show up at the debate. And you got an interesting soundbite from him that I'd love to play that suggests that maybe Kemp is, has some slight doubts about Trump as the nominee. Let's listen. Every single candidate that was on their stage, their favorability ratings improved and his went down. And while looking at national polling, he still has a commanding lead and everybody thinks he's inevitable and that's what the national media and a lot of other people want because uh, they want him to be the nominee. I mean, I don't think that narrative is out there. I think there's a, a long way to go and uh, I, th I think he's making a mistake by not getting up there and, and fighting for the nomination and, and telling people, hey, why should I vote for Donald Trump now, you know, versus Ron DeSantis or Mike Pence or Christie or Haley or you know, anybody else, Tim Scott, anybody else that's in the, in the race. Okay, so he's saying Trump should debate, but is he also saying maybe Trump doesn't have the nomination sewn up? <laughs> yeah, this is the sort of balancing act that Governor <laughs> Kemp is trying to play here as a national figure and, of course, the, the leading Republican in Georgia, is that with the, one hand, you know, he doesn't want Donald Trump to be the nominee, right? He has plenty of reason not to want Donald Trump to be the nominee. He hasn't ruled out endorsing Donald Trump, but but he, there's many other candidates on that stage and maybe off that stage that I think he'd rather have as the Republican nominee than, than Donald Trump. But he also has to support Donald Trump, or at least in his view, has to support him if he is the nominee. So yeah, he's saying, you know, Donald Trump is still in uh, strong standing. In another part of the interview, he said he would he would still vote for Donald Trump. But He's also saying, like we've heard from many other Republicans, that he doesn't have this in the bag yet. There's a long way to go until the March 5th Super Tuesday and the March 12th Georgia vote and all the early voting states. And anything could happen, Bill. All right. It was a fascinating interview, and I was really glad um, that we got a chance to play some sound from it today. So we're really basically out of time for Greg Bluestein, Tia Mitchell, and Patricia Murphy for today's podcast. But remember, coming up on Friday's episode, we're going to answer questions from the listener mailbag, which you can now call into. It's the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. Call us anytime. Leave a question. We'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. We'd love to hear from you. And on Friday's episode, who knows, maybe your question will get an answer. Thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can find links to all the stories we talked about today in the episode summary of the podcast. We release new episodes every Wednesday and Friday or whenever big news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Where's Beyonce? That's is that in New Orleans? Uh-huh. Yeah, awesome. Oh my god, that's amazing. <laughs> I'm so excited. I am so proud of you for getting on a plane to go see her. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Ocean breeze, tropical beach, piña colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.